Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Kevin Dibley brings us a series, Gospel Friendships, Finding Joy and Resilience Through Deeply Devoted, Christ-Centered Friendships. One of the greatest gifts of the Christian life is the gift of gospel friendship. We were not made to live this life alone and being faithful to Christ in a world of sin, hardship, and disappointment is challenging to say the least. The Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Philippi to express his great joy in their deep friendship and sacrificial partnership in his life and ministry. He writes them not only to thank them, but also to encourage them to not let their dedication to one another waver. One of the great joys of being a Christian is having other Christians in your corner helping you live for and to love Christ supremely. During this study, we're going to look at Paul's friendship letter to the Philippians and we're going to learn what real gospel friendships look like. Do you want a good gospel friend? Are you willing to be one? Let's worship together. Take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Isn't that a great song to go to the Word with? As a preacher, <laughs> to sing, All I Have is Christ, before you stand up and speak, is, like a, is one of the most powerful affirmations you can make just to come and take the word and say we have Christ what more do we need and we have Christ not only the crucified and risen Christ but the interceding high priest so as we're opening up the word if you're at home and you're opening up your word just let me uh, open up God's word let me just remind you you have Christ and so you don't have to do the heavy lifting of studying the word this morning let Christ lift you and lift the word up in your heart and do the work that only he can do. So we're at the end of the first chapter of Philippians chapter 1 in this series on gospel friendship. And I hope what you're seeing as we're studying through this is the unique call of God upon the church. Paul's love for the church. The gospel friendships exist by his grace in the church around the central friendship, which is our saving friendship with Jesus Christ. And so um, even Dan prayed earlier, let Christ be on our lips and in our lives. I just thought that's a great line just to pray over and linger over. So as I read Philippians 1, 27 to 30, would you pray again what Dan prayed earlier and pray that prayer, may Christ be on our lips and in our lives. And uh, beyond that, what we're going to see is may Christ be in our community together, the centerpiece of why we live and what we treasure. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 down to the end. Paul writes, only let, and that only there, let me just say is, uh, it's translated in different ways in, in different translations, but the idea is he has been saying that we are to uh, live courageously for the gospel. If you remember last week we talked about that having um, future joy depends on having clarity over your goals and confidence in God's grace. And Paul's goal last week we saw was to be faithful to the gospel to the end, to finish the race and be with Christ and to be fruitful to the end. And he had every confidence that Christ would answer, answer that prayer. And as he comes into the end of the chapter, he says, only significantly now in light of this, do this thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm just going to pause there and ask you to think about that. Is your life now being lived, being lived in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think you could probably answer that fast. No. To some measure, 
We are not living up to what we're called to, but by the grace of God, this is written to help us live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So he says, so that whether I come, verse 27, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, I love this picture, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that, you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's writing from prison, and he's writing to the Philippian Christians. There's been regular personal communication between him and the church at Philippi. Epaphroditus and Timothy are going back and forth, or have gone back and forth, communicating the state of things at Philippi. And what's clear in this letter is that there's some difficulties at Philippi. There's some division at Philippi. There's some hostility. And Paul sort of equates it here and he says, you know, I'm in prison and I'm suffering because of Christ and my determination to preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead as the hope uh, promised through the scriptures to the Jews and reaching out to the Gentiles. That's why I'm here and I hear that's what's going on there too. And so he says, you're suffering in, in some way, in a similar way as I am. And as he writes to them, he does not give them kind of a uh, belittling, per paternalistic piece of advice, you know, hang in there, be strong, pull together. But rather, he continues to uphold the gospel, and he says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. The, the language here, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, the word that's used here actually means to live as a citizen, a good citizen of the gospel. And uh, what he's saying here is a worthy citizen, like in the Roman Empire, and, and uh, you and I, just to refresh you, if you've been here before, Philippi was a Roman city in Macedonia, set up to be like a little Rome in some ways. And so uh, Roman rule was carried out. Roman authority was emphasized there. And so if you lived at Philippi, you were expected to be a model Roman citizen. And Paul uses that kind of language to say, you at Philippi have another citizenship. Right? Go to chapter 3 and verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, he, uh, he says, But our citizenship is from where? From heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Great line to have in your mind. Our citizenship is from where? Heaven. And who is our King? The Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are awaiting. And so he says, live in a manner worthy of that citizenship. Honor the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you have been placed so i got a few quotes here because what people will do is they'll take this text of Scripture and try to give us a picture of what the church is. What they're trying to show us is that the, the church is a city. Jesus is that, right? You are a city on a hill. Let your light so shine. 
that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say you are an individual on a hill. He says you are a city on a hill. And so the picture here is that God has placed his people as a community, as a city, as a, as a, as a unit in the culture to hold up the gospel. You're, you, you've got one mission, right? You have one purpose, and that is to hold up to a world around. You know, you will put people in countries and you set them up as communities, and you say you have one responsibility to live your life in a way that glorifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that helpful sometimes, just to have recalibrated? Why does the church exist? There's a lot of definitions and explanations of why the church exists. The church exists to hold up Christ. To have Christ, as Dan prayed, on your lips and in your lives. That's the reason for the church. And the French have the word, the raison d'etre, which is the reason for being. The church exists for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the hope of the nations. So listen to some of these quotes. Um, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert uh, say this in their excellent book, The Mission of the Church. The keys of the kingdom of God are given in this age by the king, named Jesus, to the church. It's not to the government, nor to any king or pope or any other ruler, but to, rather to the church. To the, I like this line. To this ragtag bunch of argumentative, self-centered, struggling for holiness, but graciously... Uh, gloriously forgiven sinners that the kingdom of God are given. It's kind of fun. Like, those of you, we have a lot of kids who are getting their driver's license right about now. Every once in a while on a Sunday, I'll watch the cars drive out, <laughs> and I'll take a few steps back, because <laughs> parents are now giving the keys of the car. <laughs> you know how hard it is to give the keys of the car to the kids sometimes? And you go, okay, you're driving. It's even harder to get in the passenger seat. <laughs> but you're passing on the keys of the car. Who would you give the keys of the kingdom to? Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. That's why Kevin DeYoung uh, and Greg Gilbert here describe us as argumentative, self-centered, struggling for holiness, but graciously forgiven sinners. We wouldn't give the keys. <laughs> Some of the people say, you're already giving, because kids grow up so fast, you're already giving the keys of the car to that kid? You say to the Lord, you're giving the keys to the kingdom, the responsibility for the advancement of the gospel to the church? Yes. That's where he's given the keys. To put it another way, and this is how he calls it, calls it an embassy. The church acts as a sort of embassy for the government of the king. It's an outpost of the kingdom of God surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. So you have that mentality. Can you picture that this morning? The church is an embassy in a foreign land. You're strangers and aliens. Now what's the purpose? And just as the embassy of a nation is meant, at least in part, to showcase the life of that nation to the surrounding people. So if you are at the American embassy in Riyadh or Saudi Arabia, it is not only expected that you're there, but the way you live, you live in a way that honors the principles of America. That they would see, not only here, but they would see by the way you act towards them around you and you act towards one another, what the kingdom's like. That's what an embassy does. So the church is meant to manifest the life of the kingdom of God to the world around it. So the church 
declares the gospel and displays the gospel. Right? We're an embassy. We're an outpost. People hear and see the gospel. So when we hear Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's saying technically live like good citizens of the gospel produced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to David Platt. He uses uh, similar language. He says, the church is a powerful picture of a unique com- community. That's good. A powerful picture of a unique community that is not defined by ethnicity, color, age, preference, tradition, or opinion. I want to just stop there and say, listen, American Christians, to that sentence. What defines us is not what defines the culture. Something unique. The local church, Waterbrook, is an outpost of God's kingdom here in Victoria and Carver County and the Twin Cities. We are an outpost of God's kingdom designed for the spread of the gospel and the display of God's glory. That's a good definition, right? Designed for the spread of the gospel and the display of God's glory. Let me quote the the late R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul said, John Calvin said, it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, even our checkbooks, because God in Christ is king over every one of the spheres of life. So when you go to the embassy... In Istanbul, as an American, when you're living in there, the governing authority of America affects everything you do, shapes how you live. In the same way as a Christian living as the church, the kingdom of Christ is paramount. Nothing overrules Christ. Nothing overrules the constitution of the new covenant of the gospel. Nothing does. Everything about us is to be defined for the sake of Christ, and we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So my question in this little section at the end of chapter 1 is this. What does it mean to be good citizens or to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? What does that look like? Because Paul gives us some good instructions. What I want you to hear, let me just make this clearly, he is not saying by living a manner worthy of the gospel that somehow you are meriting the gospel. We do not earn the gospel, we honor the gospel. Got that? So we do not earn the gospel, we honor the gospel. And so what he's saying is there should be a a way that we live our lives that when people look at us, they see the importance, significance, and value of the gospel in our lives. How valuable is the gospel? Isn't that a good question? How necessary? You read Jesus in Matthew 13. He does the parables of the kingdom. The, The gospel, the kingdom of God is worth trading everything for. A man goes, finds a treasure in his field, he goes and sells what? Some of what he has? Sells all of what he has, and with joy, buys the land and gets the treasure. Man finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has, 
in order to embrace, get the treasure with great joy. What's being said by Paul in his own life? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Later in chapter 3, he will say, I want to know Christ. Everything else is what? Rubbish. So Philippians is Paul arguing that Christ is worth it and is worthy. The gospel is worth it and worthy. And so the way the church functions in the world is as an outpost, as an embassy, the city on a hill where it honors the king. How do I do that? How shall we do that? So let me just walk through this and show you what Paul says. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this text. The way that we display the worth of the gospel, the way we honor Christ and the gospel, let our, the, our lives, the manner of our lives, be worthy of the gospel is first by standing firmly together in authentic, spirit-given gospel unity. That's a long sentence, isn't it? But I want you to think about it for a second. Standing firmly together, not in a unity around anything, not in a unity created by a determination to be united. United around the gospel that by the power of the Spirit makes us one. Listen to how he writes in verse 27. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit and with one mind. The word there, sukos, is like one soul. <laughs> He's saying that this is authentic unity. It is real, deep, not fake unity, not Minnesota nice unity, not political community unity. He's talking about the unity of the gospel. Display the kind of unity that only the Spirit can produce in our lives through the instrumentation of the gospel. That's what he's calling there for. In John 17, Jesus, at the end of his life, prays for the church, prays for his disciples. And I just chose one of the many ways he says this in his what we call the high priestly prayer. Verse 23, he says that they may become perfectly one. Wow. How does the church become perfect? How many of you have ever been in a church that's perfectly one? <laughs> is this a vain prayer? No. This is a sincere prayer prayed by... You know what? If Jesus prayed this then, Jesus prays this now. At the right hand of the Father, He is praying for a kind of unity that cannot be orchestrated by human ingenuity. He is praying for a kind of unity that cannot be produced by commonality. He is not praying for a unity that comes because it's easy. He's praying for a unity that comes because Christ has risen from the dead and joins people together who would never be joined together otherwise. Isn't that what he's calling for? Unity of the Spirit. We are a motley crew, and it ought to be a marvel to the world around us that we still hang out together joyfully. And the answer for the, re the reason for our unity is what? 
Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in, oops, sorry, in that verse at the end of 20, John chapter 17, verse 23. So that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What does he want to happen through unity? The world to look at us and believe in the love of God. Just think about that. Let that linger over your heart. We want the world to look at the way we love one another and think that is unusual. My friends, the culture in which we live is so polarized, so toxic, so twittery. The culture in which we live is a great opportunity for us to overlook all the economic, racial, (laughs) uh, medical, COVID distinctions that we have and to say, why do those people, Republican and Democrat, white and black, right, rich and poor, why do they not just go to the same church building but give their lives for each other? And the answer is because they love with a love that is not born of man, not natural to them. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, I therefore, right into the church at Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you've been called, and with all humility and gentleness. So if you want to know what it looks like, and we're going to get there, Uh, Gabe and I were talking about this earlier. We're going to get to chapter 2 pretty quick. The only way you do this is to have what's in chapter 2, but you get some of it here, right? With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. So just in case you have an idea that biblical love looks like romantic TV love, that's not what you hear here. Bearing with one another. I don't think he's right on this one. I don't think she's got it figured out. I don't think we're on the same page. But we are on the same page about one thing, ultimately the one thing. Jesus Christ is worthy to be loved and adored and honored in the way we conduct ourselves. Right? So he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Who creates this unity? This is a miraculous unity. We're not called to create unity. We're called to maintain unity. If you are a Christian, you are united to one another. You are joined. So when people are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I remind them, you are not now given the option to join the church. You are the church. You're one with Christ, and you're one with one another, and you're joined together. So he says, there is one body and one spirit, as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What, what word should you get? We are one. So protect it, preserve it, pursue it, and live it. I like what uh, Francis Schaeffer says here on this. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talks about the fact that one of the great moments, one of the great privileges for a Christian is when you don't agree with another Christian. He says that it's not that you never disagree. He says it's actually when you disagree that you have a great opportunity. Listen to what he says. He says it's in the midst of a difference, that's what he means, that we have a golden opportunity 
Uh, when everything's going well and we're all standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. They don't care that you sit by the campfire and sing Kumbaya. What happens when we have fundamental cultural differences that we have to work through? But when we come to a place where there's a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time, observable love. <laughs> so what he's saying is you can have two Christians who are deeply convicted of the scriptural position on different things, and they can't get past it. But while they're disagreeing profoundly, they're very clearly loving in the name of Jesus Christ. That's an opportunity of the Lord, he says, that the world says. He says, then there's something the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has been sent by the Father. Isn't that a good text? Or a good uh, illustration. And so that's what Schaefer says. When we disagree, it's a great opportunity to apply John 17. When we can't see the same thing the same way, we show what is preeminent for us. This is the centering power of the gospel. The gospel tells us that everything, everything, everything gets laid aside in place of the central supremacy, functional supremacy of Jesus Christ and him crucified above all else, right? Can you go around that today? Can you affirm that? Can you display that? That's why the Bible reads, you know, end of Ephesians and going into the chapter, it says you should forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you, right? So that's what happens. The gospel becomes the joining thing. So that's standing firmly in gospel-produced unity, spiritually given unity. Here's the second way that we live in a manner, striving vigorously together for gospel fidelity. So this is part of, you know, Paul writes these long, run-on, connected sentences. So he says, let, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent. So he thinks he's going to get out and go see them, but he doesn't know. So maybe he'll hear directly because he goes to Philippi, or maybe he'll hear secondhand as Timothy comes back. But he says this, whatever the case may be, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And then he uses this word, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The, the word that he uses here is athleo in the Greek, which we have the word athletics from. And it's actually the word athleo, and soon means together, which means you got to play as a team. That you're actually striving together for, he says, the faith of the gospel. And the language here means is that what we are concerned ultimately is not about us and our opinions about anything, but that the gospel is maintained as central and supreme and the truths of the gospel, the faith that comes once delivered to the saints is held intact. That's our responsibility. It's, it, we hold the church together by holding on to Christ together and holding up Christ together and insisting that week after week, day after day, that the gospel is not contaminated, cut down, divided, parceled off. See, the great danger facing the gospel is not that the gospel is totally ignored. The, pro the danger of the gospel is that it just has stuff added to it or it's dissected. Gerald Hawthorne says, 
only by the total cooperation of Christians striving unitedly together with each other in this fierce contest for the minds of men can the true gospel be preserved against distortion and destruction by its opponents. So he's right. He's saying that's what's written to Philippi. All the way through the history of the church, the gospel has come under attack. Friends, let's just remember, it's not you and me ultimately that's coming under attack. Ultimately, it's the gospel that comes under attack because the gospel, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation. When you and I get in, you know what it's like in a relationship and we personalize things? Somebody says something and it's suddenly all about us and we can't hear the pain that's driving what they're saying. We can't understand the perception, what's behind them. If we personalize this and make it all about us, we'll never have power to address what it actually is. And what Paul does is says, I mu-, or John says, I must, he must increase, I must decrease. Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. Right? I do not preach myself, he says, but Christ and him crucified. It's not about me, it's about Christ. And we have to come back as a people and say the chief responsibility of the church is to maintain and uphold the integrity of the gospel. You are an embassy in the world. You are an outpost in the world. What is your task given to you by your king? Hold ground. No matter what is said, no matter what the pounding on the door is, no matter what's going on, hold to the faith once delivered to the saints hold of the gospel. And there's all kinds of ways. A.W. Pink writes, oh sorry, I got a Dever quote. Oh, you're, you're on there, man. You're fast. Do I have, do you have the, there's the Dever. A distorted church usually con- coincides with a distorted gospel. If you want to know what goes wrong with the church, it's almost always they get off the gospel. And it's not the gospel is abandoned, it's that the gospel is corrupted. A.W. Pink says, heresy is not so much the total denial of truth as a perversion of it. See, the devil almost always just adds something to it, right? Add Judaism. It's the gospel plus circumcision plus whatever. It's, It's add to it prosperity. It's add something to it, health and wealth. It's Jesus plus this. It's, it's Jesus and, and socialism. You, just, you can corrupt it in every way. So that's why, a, he writes, a half-lie is almost more dangerous than a complete repudiation. You know, that's why I was thinking the other day. I was driving down Highway 6 or 12, and I saw one of those Marys in a bathtub standing out front of somebody's house. And I thought, what if I lived right next door? I had a, would have a temptation to put up a sign, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No other mediator. We don't need another. Mary would never have seen herself as a substitute for her son. But it's one mediator at another mediator, at the saints, at the relics, at something else, right? And he says, no, Christ alone. Christ alone. You have one charge, church. Christ alone our hope is found. There is no other name. They might call you a fool, but it's Christ alone. You have only one task. Isn't that great? It's clear, but it's not easy. I wrote down some of the examples today where the gospel must be preserved, which, you know, all all theologians know there's no new heresy. 
There's just new, new uh, marketing. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody, everybody packages old heresies in new ways. So in the Bible, there's the battle for, against religious moralism. It's Jesus plus good works. So read the book of Galatians. You go, it's, you, you know, if you, if you have Jesus and you have circumcision, you have Jesus and you have the law, you have Jesus plus the Sabbath, you have Jesus and all this kind of stuff, then, right, then you're okay. Then you can be assured. No, it's Jesus. It's Christ alone. He alone is salvation. doesn't mean you don't have good works, but good works are not the means of your justification. It's Christ alone. Religious materialism. Let's just remember, the health and wealth gospel is not new. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the whole argument on suffering right from the beginning. He had to tell them, you know what? We got to the point of even despairing of life. So if you think the Christian life is all roses, sunshine, you need to understand it's not that. And he goes to chapter 8 and he says, you know what? Just as Christ, who was rich, became poor so that we in him might become rich, he says, let's be like that. Let's give our riches for the kingdom of God. Chapter 12, he says, I could boast in strength, but God gave me a thorn in the flesh and then told me my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. So we, see, you know what he's doing? He's fighting a self-exalting health and wealth and prosperity. Is that true today? There's people who want you to believe that the sign of your true spirituality is that you have no cancer and you have no conflict and you have no crises in your life. That doesn't read in the Bible at all. At all. And as Christians, we got to stand up and say, it is Christ alone and Christ crucified and there's a cost to following Christ. Clarity, religious moralism, religious materialism, religious nominalism. You see a lot of that. So that's where James comes in. Second Peter comes in and has to deal with it. The book of Jude has to write about it. And it, this, could be, this could be written in different ways. There's a lot of people who want Jesus and then just want to live the way they want to live. They add Jesus to their lives. That's the toughest part of doing the gospel. You can't have Jesus added on to your life as a name badge, as a cross around your neck, and that's, that's the extent of it. We live in a culture where there's Jesus plus every sexually immoral lifestyle. But we love Jesus, and we appropriate Jesus. My dear friends, Jesus is not your lackey. He's your Lord. And so there's, there's a call to the church to keep coming back and say, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. We have to fight against religious pluralism. Jesus at the woman, with the woman at the well. <laughs> Which mountain do we worship on? <laughs> and Jesus said, if you knew who you were speaking to right now, you wouldn't be looking for water anywhere else. And God is looking for true worshipers. One day they won't be worshiping at any of these mountains, Right? He's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And the gospel of John is this. I am the way. I am the truth. Uh, uh, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John says, I write this gospel. That's the role of the church. The church is to strive vigorously. It's not the pastor's responsibility to uphold the integrity of the gospel. It is the church's responsibility. 
to hold the gospel together. So when Jude writes to the believers there, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. That's the call of the church. Third, the way we demonstrate the worthiness of the gospel as this outpost, as this embassy in the world, is by persevering fearlessly out of gospel loyalty. Notice what he says there in verse 28, and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. (laughs) Notice what he says there. Stand firm, courageously. And when they watch you standing firm, courageously, what's being said to them? It's not being said to them, wow, aren't they bold people? What they're looking at is saying, there's a bunch of cowards who somehow got courage. Isn't that what happened in the book of Acts? And the, and the perseverance of Christians under the compromise and the opposition of the culture, the perseverance of the Christians in love and in grace and unity and servanthood, the perseverance around the gospel is a demonstration that the God who they're proclaiming is the real God who lives. They see the power of God in a persevering people. Right? Isn't that what happened in the book of Acts? That was the declaration there. Acts 14. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that these were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. (laughs) We can't put that together. We want to puzzle people. Why is it? That when they're insulted, why is it when they're ridiculed, they continue to love, they continue to serve, they continue to praise Jesus, they continue to press on, and they don't stop because the culture's threatening them. You know why? Because the God they believe in must be real. Because we've seen these people. They live in our neighborhoods. They're no different than you and I. And yet there's something that's miraculous in their standing firm fearlessly. And that's a reminder to them, number one, that if this God is real, they better prepare to meet their God. Our fearlessness is meant to put the fear of God in them. Right? God takes the fear out of us to put it in them, that they might flee and seek him. Martin Luther wrote, great hymn, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Peter, in writing in his final letter, reminding them of things he's already told them that they might persevere, says this confidently, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There's a sense that we hold the the embassy firmly in place around the gospel because we want the people to know that they are soon about to meet the King of Kings. We are declaring to them, you will stand before the Lord, and that day is coming soon. And that's why you don't get suckered in and distracted or discouraged and dismayed, no matter how bad it is. In fact, Jesus in his teaching seems to indicate, that, and Paul says this in his letter to Timothy, that when the culture gets increasingly dark, the day of Christ's return is increasingly near. And there's a greater urgency for us to stand firmly in the culture. 
The other uh, day, Friday night, Orlando Magic basketball player, 22-year-old Jonathan Isaac, didn't wear the Black Lives Matter shirt and didn't bow his knee. And uh, he gave an explanation. His team supported him. If you've been watching the NBA kickoff, everybody is bending the knee at the national anthem. And, and, uh, and he gave his explanation. Now, since then, uh, he has been torn to shreds in his intelligence has, and, and he, you know, he, they've given him grace because he's 22, some of them, but the writing has been brutal because they think he's just quickly proof-texting passages of Scripture to justify what he's doing. But what he was actually doing, and we've got to pray, is that he was saying that, it, it, and he does say it very clear, black lives actually matter to me because he's black, you know, but he's a Christian. He says, you know what i got to do? I, I have a citizenship and a loyalty that's higher than standing with my teammates on this. And I'll just read you what he said, but you got to be reminded, he got insulted in his intelligence, his, his cultural adeptness, all of these things. My dear friends, the insults that will come against you if you say Christ alone is what we need will come from people who would normally be aligned with you. That's what makes it painful. Jesus says it will be your brothers and sisters who will turn against you. But Jonathan Isaac said this, I feel that the Bible tells us that we all fall short of God's glory. And at the end of the day, whoever will humble themselves and seek God and repent of their sins, that we could see it in a different light. See our mistakes and people's mistakes in a different light. See people's evil in a different light. And he said, and that it would help bring us closer together and get past anything that on the surface that doesn't really deal with the hearts of men and women. Do you understand what he's saying there? He said, the reason I'm standing here is that the only hope I have that not the not that surface level cultural changes will happen, but real authentic racism will be eradicated is that the gospel gets in there and it changes the hearts of men and women. My hope is in the gospel. He was standing. He's paying a price. Hopefully he can, by the grace of God, continue to stand firmly. He'll get insulted like Paul. It's foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's the power of God unto salvation. Right? And that's been transforming. So you have to persevere courageously and fearlessly with gospel loyalty. He had a greater loyalty than his team and his people and his culture and the age and his generation. His loyalty is to the gospel and the God of the gospel. We need that. We need to pray for that. And finally, at the end of this, by suffering gladly for the ongoing progress of the gospel ministry. Notice what Paul says here. You want to show the gospel is worthy? <laughs> Consider it an honor to suffer for it. It's like you would say to someone, yet you ask a Marine or a, a Navy SEAL, you ask them, why are you doing what you're doing? And their answer would be, because I believe the freedoms and the privileges of the country from which I come from are worthy of it. That's what they would say. It's why you're there. As a Christian, why are you willing to go through hardship and suffer? And he says, for it has been granted to you, verse 29, for the sake of Christ that should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Ray Stedman says, if you're not prepared to suffer, then just forget about being a Christian. 
because the gospel's worthy of suffering and sacrifice. And suffering and sacrifice demonstrates the worthiness of the gospel. Right? So the gospel's worthy of suffering and sacrifice, and suffering and sacrifice shows the worthiness of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's an honor to suffer. And if you are so in love with Jesus, so amazed by the gospel, so convinced that it's the hope of of humanity, if you're so, that this is the treasure, if you're so convinced that this is the treasure, then suffering is a privilege. It is not considered suffering. David Livingston, on one of his journeys back, before he went back and died, I think in Zambia or someplace in Africa, David Livingston, when he came back to Cambridge University, gave a lecture, and of course the question comes up, you know, why did you suffer? Why are you willing to do this? And David Livingston said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. Let's linger on that for a second. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious day hereafter? In other words, what? He's weighing out the cost-benefits. He's saying, it's the trade-off is nothing. Away with the word, he means, he means the, the word sacrifice, in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, and danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. I love it. He's not saying it's easy. He's not saying that you don't waver. He's not saying you don't struggle in Africa when you're trying to share the gospel. But he says, let it only last as a moment in our thinking. But let this, he says, all no, be the truth. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us and for us. Friends, you understand that we are citizens of another culture, another kingdom. We're an outpost for another land. Just think about that. We are not citizens of this earth. And we are called to live in a manner worthy of the kingdom and the citizenship to which we belong. R.C. Sproul tells a story one time that he was traveling in Eastern Europe and he was going from Hungary to Romania. And as they were going from Hungary to Romania, they had to go through a checkpoint and somebody had warned them at that point. It was late, I think it was, I think it was in the 90s. I can't remember exactly when it was. But he was traveling and he said as they were traveling into Romania, they had been warned that they were hostile to Americans at that point in time. And sure enough, as their bus or train came to be checked, those young soldiers got on board and began to look at passports and began to make people stand up, began to identify the Americans, and they all had to stand up. And they said, here we go. And as they're standing up there, uh, an older um, uh, Romanian their, their, their captain or whatever came in and, and came in and began to look around and uh, he's checking the passports with them. Then he notices a bag that one of the ladies have and he says, what's in that bag? And she opens up and it's a Bible. And, and he takes the Bible and he um, looks at his men and he looks around and he goes, this is not an American. This is not an American. 
this is not an American. And he points at all of them and says, this is not an American. And then he hands the Bible to R.C. Sproul and he says, read Philippians 3.20. The man was a Christian. And he read, our citizenship is not of this earth, but is of heaven. And he reads that and he goes, and I am not a Romanian. And he turned to the young men and said, these are Christians and they're free to go. And R.C. Sproul just said that was a powerful illustration that our supreme citizenship is from above. So let's live in a manner worthy of that citizenship. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, thank you that you have made us citizens of a glorious kingdom and sons of a glorious king. Making us sons and daughters of, uh, who are born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. And we, as we have already sung at the beginning of this service, we are children of God, adopted into his family. We are the sons and daughters of the king. And we rejoice, dear God, help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, on that note, I just want to pray, go out and be the church. God bless you. Have a great Sunday today. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.